Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorff. And this episode is a COGX Festival special. In June 2019, we were honoured to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. We believe that AI has enormous opportunity for everybody, business, society, the planet. But only 12% of people think that technology has helped society. We won't reap the benefits of AI if we don't avoid the risks of AI. Organizations and individuals developing, deploying, or operating AI systems should be held accountable for their proper functioning. In this COGX special, AI for Everyone, we look at goal four, the SDG quality education. The podcast starts with a keynote from UNICEF CEO Mike Penrose, where he explains the Generation AI Initiative, which is engaging stakeholders to build AI-powered solutions that help realize and uphold child rights. The rest of the panelists then join him to discuss how AI education is so important and how we can really prepare the next generation for how this is going to affect them. Each member of the panel and their company has a different approach to this. And the last question that Irina asked them was what keeps you up at night? So don't stop listening till the end because it's quite funny. This talk took place on the Future of Work and Education stage in partnership with HireVue. So thank you. I think start really with, with a focus on the 2030 vision. You know, I represent UNICEF, the, the UN Children's Agency. And one of the reasons we absolutely love the SDGs is their ambition, the, almost the audacity of their ambition. Because the MDGs were great. Don't get me wrong, we, we had some huge step, made some huge step forwards with the MDGs. But when you frame the question in terms of we want to halve absolute poverty, we want to double the number of children in, in education, you sort of lack a bit of that ambition. And to be frank, we came close or achieved a lot of the MDGs because we focused on high burden and uh, high population countries. So you hit India, Bangladesh, China, Indonesia, and a couple of others, you've done it because you've halved it or you've doubled it. The great thing about the SDGs is when you say eradicate absolute poverty or complete access to quality education, you have to start with the Central African Republic. You have to start with South Sudan, Somalia, the furthest behind, the hardest to reach, because otherwise we're not going to achieve it. And this is where I think AI and technology can really help us create that world that we want to see, the 2030 vision, which is a better world to live in. And we in UNICEF think that technology and AI will play a much more fundamental role in children's lives and children who are being born today than they have in our lives. They will, it will influence everything from how they're conceived and born to where they grow up to the types of jobs they have. And I think most importantly, and what I'll get to, the access to the services they need to survive and thrive. And that's critical because the world we live in today is still pretty much set up, especially in the developing world, to provide services in a very static way in a way that, that assumes you will be born, you will grow up, you will live, you will work, and you will die within about 25 to 30 miles 
of the same place. Schools are static. Medical and health services are static. And children are increasingly mobile. They're mobile for economic reasons, and they're mobile because of disasters, crisis, and unfortunately, increasingly conflict. And how we provide access to those services to children today is going to be critical in determining their future. Now, UNICEF has had to rely on innovation and new technology for a long time to deliver what we've done. A lot of people don't know, we vaccinate half the world's children. Every single year, half the world's children are vaccinated by UNICEF. And to provide that supply chain through deserts, 50 degrees centigrade heat, with very little access to electricity, how we manage to map and look at disaster zones, to map where water points are, where schools might be, how we look at understanding the needs of rural populations in really difficult to reach and often conflict-affected areas has, relied us, has made us rely on technology, satellite technology, drones, really fascinating one. December last year, we were the ones that did the first ever drone-facilitated vaccination of a child in the Pacific Island. Small child was born, long way from vaccinations, and we trialled drone delivery and self-vaccination technology, which now works. And that type of thing is what we've relied on to really get us to where we are today. But we're going to need a lot, lot more. And we think the area that will benefit most from AI and modern technology is education. Now, I'm a bit of a purist on this, having spent most of my time delivering both humanitarian and development work. I believe there is really only one true development input. The rest is peripheral, and that's education. When you have a well-educated population, you get entrepreneurs, you get doctors, you get nurses, you get civil uh, servants, you get all of the structures you need to create a state. Without education, it doesn't matter what you do. Now, there's arguments that you need healthcare and nutrition in order to support it, and I would agree with that. But the most fundamental objective has to be to educate children. And this is where we're going to need the most help in achieving SDG 4. Now, we already do quite a lot, and I'll give you some examples. So we have a program called U-Report around the world. Now, U-Report is in most countries, and it allows children the ability to voice their concerns, tell us what they need, to really, and, and to have debates amongst themselves. But uh, uh, one example, Mozambique, we get 30,000 questions a month from children in Mozambique, telling us about the type of education they need and the issues that are concerning them. And if you multiply that around the world, that number of questions is really difficult to deal with. So we're working at the moment to look at natural language processing chatbots, something that is multilingual, something that can respond to the concerns or the most common concerns of children in the 6,000 languages we know exist around the world uh, in a real-time way. Because actually having the staff available to, to hear children's concerns and to react to them is almost impossible. So we're starting to use natural language processing and AI in order to collect that data. And we collect vast amounts of data about what children feel they need, but we need to be able to respond to them as well. So we're working on that. If there's anybody here who knows how they can help us, that would be incredibly useful. We're working with Bill and Melinda Gates and ARM in order, and the African Academy of Sciences in order to look at scalable technology to address water and sanitation concerns. And I think a, a, a one program that really exemplifies the challenge that we're coming onto is we're working with uh, Cambridge University and Microsoft at the moment to look at how we provide quality education to the nearly 250 million children who are in this permanent cycle of movement and displacement, who are outside of mainstream education.
And that requires not only the deployment of flexible, self-learning and intelligent curricula, the type of curricula that can adapt to a child's needs without the constant attention of a teacher, but it also requires ability to have certification. And that certification is critical because the second an education curricula is hacked, the second that somebody believes it's the brother, the father, the uncle that took the exam for the child, the qualification becomes worthless. They have no passport. They can't go to other countries. And if you look at the situation in Syria, children have had to leave Syria. They've gone to Turkey. They've left Turkey. They've gone to Jordan. Each time they're moving, to, they have periods outside of education and they're moving into new environments where education is not continuous and they have no way of representing what they've already learnt. And it's only through AI that we're going to be able to build the type of platforms that not only adapt to a child's educational needs, but can learn about how they learn, and then certify that when they take a test, it is that child that took the test, and not somebody that did it for it. Because otherwise, that's what renders qualifications completely useless. And this leads into our big campaign at the moment. Our big campaign at the moment is called Generation Unlimited. Now, Generation Unlimited is based on the assumption that we've been actually pretty good at getting children into primary education, getting nutrition deployed out so they can learn, and getting them a, a sort of generation of numerate, literate teenagers. There's still a big gap. We're still focusing on the furthest behind. But our next big challenge is the second decade of life. How do you turn numerate, literate children into children employable in the new economy? And what we're seeing, especially in Africa, less so in Southeast Asia, but there's still some big gaps in areas there, is that it is those poorest and furthest behind children who this digital inequality is becoming bigger and bigger. They have less and less access to technology. They are falling further and further behind. And the types of jobs that they're going to need in the future are just not being taught. Educational curricula is not flexible enough to keep up with changing demands. And Africa has a very specific problem. Uh, every year it falls about $50 billion um, in standard infrastructure behind somewhere like Europe. It is constantly falling behind in terms of roads, banks, um, shops, uh, access to basic services, access to healthcare, and those, the, the type of infrastructure that children need. And so it's actually becoming a hotbed of uh, new technology that's compensating for that. It's making the biggest jumps forward in certain areas. So it's probably got the widest uh, adoption of internet banking and, and money transfer in the world. M-Pesa was one of the first ever um, money transfer systems because there were no banks. If you drive through, I was in Congo uh, a couple of months ago, you're driving through the middle of Congo, about as far away from anywhere as you can get, and all the road stands say orange money, or, or it's these money transfer systems that are helping um, Africa catch up in terms of the type of infrastructure that modern economies need. But the education systems are not adapted to that. Most African children still learn post-colonial systems. Well, they learn about the history of Westphalia and Westphalian politics, not coding. They're not, they don't have access to the type of skills and the teachers are not equipped to be able to teach. And this is the biggest challenge I think we face. But part of un uh, Generation Unlimited, we also have a, a campaign called Generation AI. And Generation AI, very simply, is based on the fact that we have spent the last 70 years working with governments to make sure that the world's most ratified treaty, the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child, is adopted and that everything governments do, and, and I can say it's the world's most ratified treaty, every country on earth bar one is party to it. And I'll let you guess which one it is that's not party to it. Um, 
The, uh, but we've spent ages working with governments to make sure that everything from educational curricula through to health services are um, integrated into the way governments plan and deliver services. But we also believe that the only way we're going to tackle this big educational divide is through startups and tech companies taking over and being innovative and helping us deliver for children in remote areas. But without sort of casting aspersions, normally the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and children's rights are not front of mind when commercial products are developed. And we have to change the way we work, and that's what Generation AI is about, to help you guys understand what we know about children's needs, children's rights, and how to do what we call in the humanitarian sector, do no harm. We know you can do a lot of good, but we've also seen in the past that without consideration of children's rights front and centre of, of programme design, harm can also be done. So the three things we need help with, there are three asks I have. The first is how do we achieve digital connectivity? How do we address that enormous digital literacy and skills gap that exists between rich countries and developing countries? How do we ensure that, for example, in Sudan or Zimbabwe, where only 4% of people say that they have sufficient digital skills to engage in the modern economy, how that is addressed? And even somewhere like Europe, where we know 37% of citizens don't feel they have the skills to engage in a digital world. We need to address that divide, and that will require us achieving not only um, uh, the right types of teaching, but the right types of digital connectivity to make sure everybody has access. Now, there's some interesting stuff, Zeppelin balloons going up across Africa, what universal Wi-Fi being talked about, but we need help rolling that out to the furthest behind and the hard hardest to reach, not just connectivity, but how they use it. The second challenge, and this is one I'm sure some people in this room can help with, is intelligent automated translation. As I said earlier, there are 6,000 languages spoken on Earth. But of the top 12 most popular platforms in terms of teaching children digital skills, only one is not in English. So how do we get children across the, the, the planet whose first language might not be English access to the highest quality forms of education and digital skills transfer? We think it's only through intelligent automated translation. Now, Google is great. It's, it has um, uh, sort of revolutionized how a lot of people communicate. But as a, as a bilingual person, I'm, I'm half French as well, I can tell you that sometimes when I'm struggling with... Uh, with French grammar, and I put it into Google's Translate, it's not always correct. And those little nuances can cause a great deal of harm to education if a child doesn't have the ability to follow up and question. So that intelligent and automated translation. And the third one, and I think the most important, is this challenge, and the one I, uh, I alluded to with, uh, that we're working on Cambridge with, is remedial learning. Exactly 263 million children are outside of mainstream education at the moment, and an awful lot more have period, periods where they're outside. So, for example, in southern Afghanistan, we're pretty good at rolling out schools. Schools are being established everywhere, but there is the spring offensive every single year from the Taliban. Children will be outside of those schools for about two months. And what happens is, cumulatively, that degrades their level of education and their family's ability to pay for that. We need good remedial education and intelligent remedial self-learning education tools that allow children to catch back up and not necessarily occur, um, um, have what we've seen more and more, which is when a child has one or two years worth of remedial delay in their education, their family quite often has, uh, means 
has the choice only to take them out of education and make them work. So around all the refugee camps in the world, around all the areas of displacement in, in the world, you have the highest levels of child labour, and that's because families just cannot afford to pay for catching up. Self-learning, intelligent remedial education tools are going to be essential in helping us achieve these goals. So, I think that there is huge amounts of opportunity for the people at this conference to help us achieve the 2030 vision, particularly in the field of education. And the challenge I will throw out, I'm contactable on the, uh, the app linked to this, is if any of you know how to achieve those three things, connectivity, automated translation, and remedial education, I want to hear from you. We need your help in rolling this out, rolling it out, as the SDGs say, to the furthest behind and the hardest to reach. Yes, we can do it in Nairobi. Yes, we can do it in Bangkok. But we need to be able to achieve it in the Central African Republic. We need to be able to go into Yemen at the moment in conflict and continue children's education. Because we know that if 15 years' worth of delay in a country uh, occurs, if an entire generation is excluded because of conflict or disaster, that country will probably never catch up or not in our lifetime. And we need to be able to avoid that even in countries facing conflict. So please help us with it because there are huge opportunities, but there are also risks. And we want to work with you to make sure that child rights is integral and built into every single one of the projects that you're designing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Massively important mission here. Um, one quick detail is you can guys can actually reach out directly to Mike on his profile on the website yeah. for COGX. So it's actually quite easy to get personally in touch with Mike. Um, for the debates that we're about to uh, initiate, we've talked about generational platforms, right? And you had radio, TV, internet, mobile, and a couple of the giants were mentioned, right? Google, Facebook. Yeah. Amazon. So uh, I think I couldn't really think about anyone better to actually lead and moderate the debate than Irina Kaufman from Facebook AI. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm lucky enough to moderate this panel. I recently joined Facebook AI four weeks ago, so I'm a newbie there. But before that, I was at Google AI for 12 years at Google and helped found and build the team of Google AI. So I'm happy that I have the honor to have host this uh, panel because these folks are actually putting into action. The last uh, panel talked about call to action, and as I talk to this panel, that's what they're doing. So I'd like to introduce them. Obviously, you've met Mike. We have Tess, who is the CEO of AI for All. Do you want to come up? And I'll let them introduce kind of the work they're doing versus me taking a stab at it. We have Timo Roos, who is a professor uh, of CS at the University of Helsinki, and also Kate Jarvis. So first, let's start off with a, just a brief introduction of what you're doing, because I got a chance to hear about it. It's super exciting, and it's best in their own words. So go ahead, Tess. Yeah, thank you. How's everyone doing this morning? Excellent. My name is Tess Posner. I'm the CEO of AI for All. We're a nonprofit organization that's focusing on increasing diversity and inclusion in AI. AI is obviously the driver of the fourth industrial revolution, what we're calling the new electricity. But right now, we're facing a tremendous diversity and inclusion crisis in the field. The technology itself is being built by a homogenous group that's really only accessible to a few. 
and yet AI is now getting embedded into our daily lives, and most importantly, it's being embedded into decision-making and actually gating access to things like financial services and getting access to jobs or getting access to parole. And so it's really critical that we have those that represent our diverse society part of building these systems because they're going to impact so many people's lives. So we run AI education and mentorship programs for underrepresented populations, including people of color, women, and low-income populations. So far, we've been mostly working on an AI summer camp um, for young people that we do all around the United States and Canada. Um, but just a few weeks ago, we launched our first ever open learning program, which is actually free beginner-level AI education that's going to be that's offered online. And we're testing it right now, and we're planning to reach a million people globally with this model, and really making it as inclusive and accessible as po and approachable as possible. Um, which currently there's not a whole lot out there that really speaks to that audience um, from zero to one. So really excited to be here with you all today. That's a good segue, because Timo, you run a course online, so I want to make sure this audience hears about it that's accessible to everyone and not necessarily tech researchers who've been engineering their whole careers. Go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, good morning. Uh, my name is Temu I'm from the Finnish Center for AI, and uh, I manage the AI education program there. And my mission is kind of to open, to not, not to only be concerned with, uh, with the students, university students uh, uh, in the classrooms, in the lecture rooms, uh, but also the general public. And, um, and in that direction, we've been um, collaborating with this uh, brilliant company, Reactor, uh, who helped us create an online course, uh, which is really like, as the title of this session, is AI for everyone. So we really want to, uh, actually, when we started thinking of the target group, we thought that We'll just we'll build an AI course for everybody who is not interested in AI, <laughs> right? So <laughs> not a very uh, smart, uh, I guess, uh, target group thinking in here normally. But uh, we felt that that's the group that that actually needs our help most to be invited into tech, and we want to sort of um, um, do everything we can to support diversity. And we've got a, we started out with the goal of one percent of the Finnish population. We were like a government. Uh, uh, supported program um, as a part of the Finnish AI strategy, uh, but now that we've reached that uh, level and uh, and goal, we we set our goal to be not two percent of Finland, but actually one percent of the global population. So that you can do the math, um, it's it's a lot of people, and uh, and certainly we don't want to reach to the like the sort of let's say the top one percent that you sometimes talk about that that are the richest and most affluent people, but really want to reach out to everyone and uh, and really in also sort of in underprivileged uh, populations and and regions. And uh, I think that's a that's a big challenge. Uh, there's not as Ted pointed out, there's not so much out there available for that uh, for that audience. Uh, but it's really really fundamental that we invest a lot in, in reaching out to, to those people. Um, so Kate's next. Me and Kate chatted a little bit about connecting companies and mentors and the need for mentors um, and careers. And this is something that I always think about being at big companies of how do we give back. And many of my coworkers think about that. They feel like we're in this big company, but really they do want to do social good and grow kind of the pipeline. So please tell us about what you've been doing. 
Yeah, thanks so much. I'm Kate Jarvis, and I am the Director of Data and Digital at the Careers and Enterprise Company. And what we do is we bring employers into schools in order to prepare young people for the fast-changing world of work. So, of course, that relates to AI in any number of ways, and it re relates to the fact that representation matters in STEM fields. So, first of all, our model for how young people choose careers is really built on a, mach a machine learning model. So, if you iterate different possibilities for a young person across any number of careers, they should be able to make better and more informed decisions over time. So, it's really that kind of test, learn, adapt model that undergirds all of our software in a face-to-face -face interaction. We also fund providers of careers activities for young people that really get them interested in technology. So for example, Apps for Good, which does great work in terms of getting young people to think about how they can use an app on their phone to address a social problem and really walking them through that app development process. We're also on the fringes of recommending careers to young people in a highly AI-driven way. And I think I'm both excited and very wary about the possibilities there. So you can think about the fact that Facebook has a ton of information about you and it can sell a 14-year-old a pair of trousers based on their browsing history. It's certainly possible for us to do the same thing with careers. The question is how we don't railroad people down particular career paths. We still aim to give them a breadth of experiences and allow them to make their own choices. So I'm really interested in the fact that, you know, we talk about there's a pipeline problem in STEM. There isn't a pipeline problem. I'm so sick of hearing that. We're on a panel with brilliant women in technology. There's a mentoring problem. And the Careers and Enterprise Company attempts to address that by bringing women who are in STEM in high-level positions and taking them into schools and modeling what that's like. And so I think there's always going to be this tension between you have to expose people to a variety of options because they simply don't know what's out there and, okay, we know a lot about you. Maybe you don't need that math course. You actually want this AI-specific course. Great. And I know, Mike, we learned a little bit about what you're doing. But one thing I wanted to, uh, if there's anything you want to add, of course, one thing I want to ask you about, recently or last year, Facebook and Google opened a Masters of AI program in Africa. And that targets graduate students. How do you see us getting into the schools, not just big companies, but in general getting better education, maybe status of education systems throughout mm -hmm. the world, and how do you approach that earlier? Because it might be too late by the time they're in grad school. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, we, in UNICEF I can sort of admit that we went very quickly to technological solutions. So we were like, right, we can get iPads out and kids can then access. But we learned very quickly it's actually the pedagogy, it's self-learning, it's the ability for children to absorb information rather than just have access to it that's critical. So I think that the, the the help that we need to achieve the SDGs is as much in how children learn and how AI can help children learn without necessarily constant supervision and less about just getting the technology in their hands in order to be able to use it. You need both, but we're probably further behind on the pedagogy. But also just at a point um, uh, to, that I think both of you are making. For us also, it's starter, when you start with the furthest behind and the hardest to reach, where there is a supply chain problem, is in a lot of the poorer countries. Um, and we also know that when you educate men, the impact that you have on children 
is actually pretty minimal. Sorry guys, but we, we have quite a small impact on the outcome of our children from an educational level. When you educate women, especially women on modern technology, the impact you have on children is enormous because they will grow up much more likely to be digital natives. So I think also focusing very much on gender inequality and access to technology in the developing world is going to be how we address a lot of the problems for the next generation of children coming through. And I know a lot of you work with children, obviously, at different stages. Um, as a parent, I've seen my own child's trajectory of understanding AI, what does mommy work on, to like, <laughs> he understands it, I think, better than me at this point. He can actually explain in the video game what the AI is doing and why it's better mm -hmm. than him. Um, but children are coming up with better solutions, I feel like. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing actually one of the students that went through Tessa's summer camp, and I was on stage in awe. When we walked off, I asked her for a job. I said, when you're like, please hire me one day. So um, what kind of ideas are you seeing come out of students that have been exposed to either more technology or understand AI? Because their thinking is completely different. I'll let you take it away. Yeah, okay. so one of the things that we've learned is really that AI has a narrative problem. The way that it's perceived by many of us is that you need a PhD to get involved or that it's very specific to coding or sitting at a computer. But the reality is AI is a tool set that can be applied to many different disciplines around solving different types of problems. And so the way that we approach AI education is saying, what is AI in regards to solving problems in healthcare or solving important issues that you care about? And framing it in that way tends to spark young people and their natural interest in solving problems and getting involved and figuring out who am I? What difference can I make in this world? So we have them work on AI projects during our, our courses. And then afterwards, we find that over 60%, these are, these are high school students, have started AI projects on their own. So we decided to start a grants program where we give them up to $1,000 um, of things to work on in their communities that they care about. So for example, one young woman, Stephanie, she was raised in an agricultural community, um, first generation Mexican-American, grew up in a very low-income community. And she decided to go back into her, her hometown and address water quality issues using machine learning mm -hmm. methods. And this was something that directly impacted herself, her community, and her, her family growing up. Um, we've also seen young people address wildfires, address um, building apps for kids with autism because that was something that their brother struggled with. So you see a lot of organically, people develop solutions based on the problems that they've experienced. So when we bring more people in, we're gonna see a broader set of solutions being developed, especially if we take that interdisciplinary approach that AI can be applied towards all these different industries and all these different types of problems and really empowering young people. This is yours, like you're shaping the future of AI. We're gonna make decisions now that will affect them, so we need to get them involved immediately in, in building this stuff. I'm guessing this will work better, but um, so obviously this group is taking action. Um, big companies also understand that they have a role and a responsibility. Um, I wanted to ask this group, what do you think academics and academic research, what role do they play? I know team, yesterday uh, you posted, you were watching one of the panels and talks and you had this Twitter post of, I hope someone asks, what's the role of academic research? Because I spend a lot of time with academic researchers, whether it's recruiting or working directly with them. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. 
Yeah, so I, I think that that was a kind of a commentary on on the debate whether startups or big tech are going to be the the ones to disrupt and and shape the future. And I I was kind of a little bit surprised that some people uh, like, for instance, Jan Tallinn, he answered that it's obviously the startups because they take the risks and and the big tech is kind of uh, these dinosaurs that don't <laughs> kind of evolve anymore. Uh, but I was sort of uh, it's kind of strange to think like. Um, if you think of the, uh, the level of risks that you can take, if your time span is in a couple of years, you can't really take any big chances because you, you have to be kind of doing pretty sure, sure, uh, like, uh, sure bets. But you can take big risks if you, if you, if you, if you're, if you have the capacity and, and the kind of time span of decades. And that doesn't mean necessarily that we would start thinking of the problems and identifying the problems now and then you know, after 20 years when it's already too late to solve them, we'd have the solutions. Because in the academia, of course, we have been thinking of these problems already for decades. And therefore, the solutions that we're getting, yes, they took decades to solve. Uh, but we are now, now sort of getting the fruit of that research. So it's, uh, I just kind of wanted to sort of emphasize the importance of, of also sort of you know, academia, but governments, even intergovernmental organizations that have the chances to take some big risks or at least sort of ambitious projects that, that aren't possible in a smaller scale. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's a, just a, a matter of finding the, the partnerships and the ways of working together. It's not like one or the other, but it's just we need to sort of appreciate the, the need for different uh, kinds of uh, organizations and you know, inclusivity also in terms of who is going to solve the problems, right? Yeah, and I, I can't, couldn't agree with you more. It's partnership. Every time I've seen a project be successful, mm -hmm. even at Google or Facebook, it's been through these partnerships with academics taking long-term bets. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, we launched AI for Social Good last year, and when we talked about it, it was empowering the ecosystem, because you can't sit in one location in the U.S. and think you know yeah. every single issue that is going on in the world. And you definitely can't think you know how to solve it, even mm -hmm. if you learn what they are. Um, so what do you see as those potential partnership opportunities in your line of work, what you've been doing? What's a partnership that you've seen work really well? And it could be anyone. Please. I, I mentioned one when we were up there. You know, we've been working with Microsoft in terms of getting the technology out into the connectivity out into some of the most remote areas. But it took our partnership with Cambridge University for them to say what I said earlier, stop looking at the technological solutions before you've cracked the pedagogy, before you've cracked how children learn, before we understand how we can use, you know, gaming to help them learn is great, but what are those elements of gaming that stimulate a child's attention? And in a positive way, not in a way that you have to shout at a 13-year-old boy to turn off a particular video game that involves parachuting onto an island 12 times a day, which <laughs> just reflecting my own life there. But it, you can have very positive and negative effects, but it took uh, working with the Education Reform Unit at Cambridge University and Cambridge University Press to say this is how children learn, and therefore this is the technological solution that can help you deploy that out there. We were starting systematically the other way around, and you had lots of, of white elephants. You had lots of technology that either people didn't know how to use or wasn't being used in the optimal way. Yeah, what I'd really like to see is the involvement of text-to-speech companies and other kind of linguistically yeah. focused organizations with smaller startups, but also with government agencies and with educators in academia. Because I think, to your point in your talk, part of what we're missing here is the kind of human element in the interpretation of language when we think about AI and how much that is shaped 
by these corpora that we're working with. So one of the examples that I ran across just Googling myself this morning, I was checking different Google translations for different phrases and seeing what happened on the other end. So I entered a phrase in Turkish for non-gendered person is a doctor. It said, he is a doctor. Non-gendered person is a nurse. It returned, she is a nurse. And so when we have these kinds of AI systems, whether they're used within you know, a particular company like Facebook or whether they're used in order to help people uh, text message and get the support they need in an underprivileged country, we need people who are thinking about that the corpora these systems are learning on are inherently biased. So I think we need to get away from data silos in solving that problem. That's a, that's a great point. I worked on ML fairness for a long time, and the data sets are biased. You have to make sure the data set isn't biased, otherwise your technology is bound to be. Um, with that, I, I had a bunch of questions because I was so excited to uh, talk to all of you. And one thing that came up, I watched a talk from Tess as I was preparing, and you talked about AI changing the world. And you have this quote, AI will change the world, but who will change AI? And I want you to speak a little bit about that because it's, it's a really powerful message. Yeah, I mean, right now, as I mentioned before, we are in a crisis of this question of who is building AI. So for example, worldwide, only 12% of AI and machine learning researchers are women, 12%. That's crazy. And at some of the big institutions, 80% of the faculty or those researching and teaching AI are male. And we don't even have the demographics around income representation or racial representation and I know they're dismally even worse than what we're seeing in the tech sector broadly. And so what that really means is that you have a very small group of people that are representing one set of background and skills and demographics that are building and shaping the technology. One of the outcomes that this is leading to, as you were mentioning, is bias. And not seeing the representative data sources, but also not catching those issues. Because it's really hard to not have bias just inherent in a data set. But who is actually asking the right questions and creating the right uh, product lifecycle checks throughout that whole system so that those things are caught early before they're out into the world. Many of you probably saw, or how many of you have read the Gender Shades study? that came out by Microsoft. Oh my gosh. Okay, gendershades.org. <laughs> so it came out last year um, by Microsoft and MIT Media Lab, and it looked at facial recognition software, which has been a big topic lately of, should we use this, how should we use this? And really they looked at, they researched um, the top facial recognition software that's being used out there today, and found that for overall accuracy of looking and recognizing people's faces, it was pretty good. But if you break it down by race and gender, the story changes. So for people of color, and especially women of color, it was much less accurate at looking and predicting at who someone is. Now imagine these systems are being used in immigration services, in hiring, and in all types of cases that could have life-altering consequences for people's lives. 
So as we outsource more decision-making to AI systems and say, oh, this is going to be actually less biased than human decision-making, it's going to help automate and create more efficiency, all of those things are exciting and, and true, but at the end of the day, if they're biased, it could exacerbate existing equity issues and further marginalize certain groups that these are things that we're trying to fix. Why would we enhance those issues with the technology? So we really need to hold up a mirror and look at who is building and shaping this technology. I go to a lot of AI conferences and I'm in a lot of discussions about AI ethics and responsible AI and what standards do we need to create. And most often it's the same people <laughs> that I see every time. And it really is on us, the responsibility is on us to look at who is on the panels that are talking about this, who is on the ethics boards, who's creating and shaping the curriculum that we're talking about, who's teaching young people. We need to ask these hard questions and be able to do what it takes, the, the hard work that it takes. And it, it is going to be a holistic solution that's not a simple answer. But if we don't get this right, not only will we miss out on a lot of the positive potential of AI, we could, again, like spiral out some of these issues that we're seeing. So we need to look at who is changing AI, because AI will and is changing the world. Please, yes. Yeah, so I, this sort of brilliant uh, stuff, and I, I just wanted to say that um, we, we sort of probably here are, and, and probably all of you are committed to this, but it's sometimes hard to sort of have faith in, in this, uh, in making progress, because it's so hard, isn't it? So we've been working on this really hard for a long time. But I just wanted to share some sort of good news that it can, it can be successful. And we were, so the, the things that I'm most proud of that we've achieved with the, with the Elements of AI course uh, is that when we started, we, we sort of, one of the kind of guiding principles that it has to be um, sort of diversity, you know, for supporting diversity and inclusivity. And when, with the design and all the approach, it's not like, it's not techy, it's kind of friendly. Like if, if there's if if that if there's a chance to put those against each other, and uh, and what we've seen is that we have about 40% women in the in the user base, uh, we have 25% uh, over 45 years of age. So it's not only kids, right? So kids are sort of of course the next generation, uh, but we we can't think that we'll only focus on the next generation. So we really need to sort of address that issue as well. So we we've got plenty of people that are already like past their student life and even past their working life and, and, and sort of uh, retired people and, 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 and that uh, sort of thing. And so it's really diverse. And uh, what we did just uh, last week is that we rolled out the program in all prisons in Finland. So now all, every single prisoner, uh, all the inmates, have, uh, they have uh, an iPad or whatever um, and, and then there's the if you want to learn about what AI is, you want to learn about like what other sort of societal implications of it, you just go ahead and, and learn that. I just heard that there was a, one uh, inmate in the Hamelina uh, women's uh, prison who nailed the first chapter with full points. So <laughs> it, it is possible to, uh, to reach those sort of really encouraging outcomes if, if we work hard. And, and, and I love that you brought that up because we've been talking a lot about children and the future, great. But when I was asked to do this panel, it actually said AI for everyone. That mm -hmm. really appealed to me. And some of the work you've been doing, it's not just children involved. It's the employers, right, that are mentoring. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk a little bit about what impact does it have on those mentors and employers as they go through it? Because I'm sure it's fundamental. 
Absolutely. So there's a lot of recent research uh, by companies like education and employers that shows that just one interaction with an employer can motivate a young person to spend more time studying for their GCSEs and in fact to attain a higher score. So it's really important that employers get involved and it's not this kind of woo-woo matter of representation. There's so much quantitative research to back up the fact that if you have an interaction with someone in a career and that sparks your fire, it will motivate you from that day forward. So you will go and you will decide, no, I am going to take physics A-level because I've just met someone with an engineering career that I absolutely aspire to be. So that's kind of our hook usually for employers is change a young person's life, right? Give an hour, change a young person's life. However, I think it's important also to talk about the CSR elements of that and you know, what's in it for me as an employer and what's in it for my business. And importantly, it's part of professional development for everyone. So not only is it nice kind of as a line item on your CV, but there are lots of reports that people who get involved in these programs with young people have better job satisfaction and that they bring those skills of leadership, of presentation, of this kind of lifelong learning mindset back home into their organization and they take that motivation and apply it to their organization's problems. So I really see it as benefiting both employers and young people. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. Whenever I talk to some of the students test, have come out of Tessa's program or have brilliant ideas, I walk off and I'm motivated. It's like, we have to keep going. We have to build a work environment that will attract this kind of talent to come and build the next generation of tools. So with that, and we talk a lot about 2030 vision, what is your vision for the world? You're doing all this great work, inspiring the future. Um, what do you see happening? If you're on a panel in 10 years, what will you be talking about? Anyone, <laughs> all of you. <laughs> well, I'm, I can tell you what I hope we're talking about. Sure. Which um, uh, we'll be talking more about the detail, the subtlety, how we improve the systems, how we, we, we can adapt and adjust what is already in place. Because as I said at the moment, there's an enormous digital disparity. You know, if you are growing up in somewhere without access to the type of, of, of tools and systems and learning that you need to engage in everything we're talking about here, chances are you won't catch up. Um, and unless we tackle that enormous disparity, especially the gender disparity in a lot of the developing world, um, there will be leaving the entire generation behind. And the whole point of 2030, you know, the phrase that underpins it, is leave no one behind. So I hope we're talking about rather banal subjects linked to uh, how we adapt, adapt and adjust as opposed to actually how we achieve digital equality. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think my hope would be that we're talking about how to use new technologies to solve problems across yeah. different sectors, rather than how to solve the problem of diversity in technology. And I feel like we just have panels for decades, right, about this problem. And so I'm really focused on what we can do in order to achieve that kind of future. And it isn't just about inspiring young people, though that is what the Careers and Enterprise Company does. It is about lifelong learning. And one of the things I find most fascinating about AI is that it's so generative 
generationally divisive, right? So there's all this fear-mongering among a lot of older cohorts, and particularly in the media, that positions automation as a thing that's taking away all of our jobs, and now we have to reskill the entire population, or we're going to face you know, worldwide unemployment. Um, but to Tessa's point, we have lived through uh, several, actually, industrialization phases mm-hmm. over the course of human history, and this is just another one. It's another opportunity for everyone to get involved with new technologies and see how they can impact their particular business models, their particular social problems. So I'd actually hope that we have a lot of older speakers on the panel as well. Certainly, we're going to be 10 years older, so yeah. that's good. So it's <laughs> good start. <laughs> Our kids will be on the panel. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I really hope that we will get rid of AI ethics or AI diversity panels, and every panel will be about AI ethics and ethical use of AI. And so there wouldn't be a, like, there's, a, there's this stage, AI ethics stage. And I think yesterday somebody pointed out really nicely that it shouldn't be a separate panel where people go in the corner and then that's got it covered. You need to sort of put it everywhere so that it's not there anymore. So it's kind of so obvious that everybody has this viewpoint that we don't really have to have a specific panel on that. And then we can talk about the real issues, and which we're, of course, talking about and in this stage and others, like, you know, lifelong learning, but also sort of other problems, you know, climate change. I think that should be mentioned in every panel, so I just mentioned it. Uh, and, and sort of really like these are the problems that AI is going to solve and we're going to solve with AI rather. Um, and so we need to get to that and we, sort of, we can't just compare, sort of have these compartments or silos of thinking about diversity in, in, in one pace and then, and then climate change in another or education or, or changing the work, working life. That's a great point. Uh, one of the points we chatted about earlier was that responsible AI ethics, AI for social impact or social good, should not be these corner cases. They should be Mm -hmm. fundamental across every stage thinking about the responsibility beyond this. So with that, everything you're saying sounds super positive and I would, most of this audience I'm guessing would agree these are all good things to do. Yes, seems reasonable. What kind of resistance do you get, if any, in your roles? Is there someone holding you back or what's the challenge? I think there's a big challenge with the narrative where it's very much, and we talked a little bit about this, but the people that are lifted up as experts are a very limited group, which I think narrows what we think is possible. And also the narrative is very much like man versus machine instead of AI for humans, (laughs) AI for people. And really thinking about AI as, as a rocket fuel to solve some of these imper- important problems, but those are not the narratives that are lifted up. It's like a nice to have, or you know, these separate panels or these separate stages, when at the end of the day, it's a tool. It's all it is is a tool. And we think of it like this technological destiny, like, oh, this is gonna happen, you know. But in reality, we're actually creating that future right now. So I think one of the challenges is, is, you know, narratives are powerful things and they can drive action or inaction or people towards something totally different than what's possible. So what I'd really like to see is a different narrative lifted up that talks about how AI can enhance human capabilities and really lifts up the amazing work that is being done all over the world by not just startups and not just big companies, but also researchers, young people, entrepreneurs who are thinking about how to use AI to be the rocket fuel that we're talking about. Um, And I think that 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 narrative piece can inspire movements as it has in the past. 
Yeah, and also not like you, you said, like man versus machine, but also another narrative that I sort of I'm sick and tired of is China versus US. And <laughs> so it's really about collaboration. And I think these sort of narratives, something versus something, doesn't, doesn't do anything to, to help that. That's a great point. Having come between two big companies that everyone can admit are pretty much competing, um, in the research world, they're collaborating. Yeah. And that was the interesting thing. Everyone looked at me, how could you do that? Like it's too and immediately I said, we've worked on projects together. We worked on opening the institute in Africa together. We've worked on partnerships along the way. Um, we're really proud of the work Microsoft is doing as well, and Apple. And that's inspiring. That's the research community. And AI has been built by the research engineering communities, um, startups, and big companies. So it's not in isolation. Um, Mike, it sounded like you like perked up, so please. Uh, just sort of, uh, in order to answer this, I have to sort of take my official hat off because it's probably going against organizational policy but um, one of the biggest challenges we have is understanding of the roles of how we can shift the needle how we can really shift things because the way that the world is set up is actually still quite traditional governments view their role as you know recreating borders central governments taxing populations to deliver basic services and corporations view all the role is still viewed about how they make money and, and how they can profit within it Actually, the idea that we're ever going to recreate a sort of Westphalian view of the world where we'll have defined borders and structured governments that will be delivering the majority of services in places like Africa where the majority of vulnerable people will live in the next 30 years is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. So all of this effort looking into, right, this is our role and that is your role, is, is sort of missing the point slightly. And for me, I think the way that big organizations like UNICEF or other not-for-profits are going to have to adapt is towards, and, and governments as well, is away from an idea that we will be the service delivery partners of the future, and that more towards a sort of what I call an Intel model. You know, there are a dozen different computers, but they're all powered by Intel. We should use our expertise to help commercial organizations do well and do good because when you achieve that incentive structure you're more likely to achieve the big leaps forward that we're going to need to address some of these and it's worthwhile remembering that the sustainable development goals have a two trillion financing gap we don't know where two trillion pounds worth or dollars worth of the money to pay for them is going to come from and there is still a sort of traditional conceptualization in international organizations and governments that it's going to come through more ODA through more government spending on aid now, the total government spending on aid is about 900 billion. Are we going to find 2 trillion more, especially in an era of protectionism at the moment? I don't think so. The way we're going to achieve it is if we help every company on earth focus a little bit of their attention on how they can do well as, do uh, as well as do good. And you know, the stuff we're doing with Facebook, the stuff we're doing with Microsoft, the stuff we're doing with Arm is, is a really good example of where purpose is becoming core to technology companies' um, objectives and strategy as well as just revenue. And that's the shift we need to, 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 to take. It's away from an idea that service delivery is the domain of a government and profit and, and technology is the domain of the corporate sector and how we can help you do good and do well in some of the most difficult places on earth. Super inspiring and one of the things that attracted me to the research group before that I'd worked in search was this moving technology forward. So you're mm. like move the needle, what is gonna, what is gonna accelerate it, the rocket fuel kind of statement that Tess made earlier, that's what got me into it. So what actually inspired you to get into the space you're in? Like, what was that 
point where you're like, okay, I have to start this program to educate diverse groups, or I have to go educate a whole like government system or whole ecosystem. Oh yeah. Um, so before I, I'm not an I don't have an AI background, um, but I was doing work in education and especially tech equity spaces, and I was working on this um, initiative called Tech Hire, which came out of the Obama administration, to really work with cities around the U.S. to connect employers to education providers to create more inclusive tech pathways for people that were non-traditional to get into tech. So moms that were returning from home, veterans, unemployed youth, all these different groups that don't currently have access to tech opportunities. And one of the things that we were doing is actually trying to incorporate AI into some of the training, and we saw this enormous gap and this is what I was mentioning before, just about the myths and the narrative. There's so much fear. I live in the Bay Area, in the middle of the whole tech ecosystem. But if you go anywhere outside of the Bay Area, and I wonder if the same kind of trend exists here, where if you go out of the, the center of where the tech is happening, there's such a different feeling and such a different space. Not only is there fear, there's disconnection, there's lack of opportunity, and we know that AI is going to be everywhere it already is, becoming invisible and ubiquitous. And so to see such a huge divide was incredibly disturbing to me because as this is the future, not just in terms of you know great jobs that are out there, but it's literally going to be in every industry. So if you work in healthcare, if you work in manufacturing, you need to have some level of AI literacy just to understand how you're gonna be interacting with these systems that will be incorporated into your field. So it really should be AI for everyone, regardless of what you go into, but that is so not the case. And working in different rural areas or different cities that were non-tech hubs really uh, woke me up to that, and that's how I started getting into AI. So you made a really good point, Kate. Um, how many people here have started like education in AI, have always been involved in AI? Because I did not do my education in AI. You're <laughs> one. <laughs> so it's okay to not have a degree in AI and still have a huge impact. And I think that's really important to remember. And it really inspiring to children. You don't have to be in one field to make a career in it. So Kate, please. Yeah, absolutely. I was a poet until I was in my mid-20s. I was touring uh, the United States doing spoken word poetry. And it was only later that I stumbled across these kind of poetry generators online that use online corpora to say really wacky things that I got interested in how it can be applied to language. But the reason I got into technology and into education about technology is because I had a lot of trouble getting access growing up. So I was homeless intermittently, and I didn't have parents who could help model for me what it was like to have a good job. And so I sort of tried to figure it out on my own, but I absolutely wouldn't have made it to where I am today without a lot of really great mentors. And so that's why I always think about the power of a mentor in a young person's life who might not have that sort of thing at home or even in their school. And as soon as I got more familiar with what it meant to be involved in technology, I discovered how truly powerful it is. And as a uh, former poor person, I thought technology wasn't for me. I thought that this was some sort of special world in which people had access to all kinds of information from across you know, the universe, and they were building the future. And I was somewhere on the outside, kind of knocking at the door, saying, please let me in. And so 
Over time, I got involved in linguistics, working with big data, and that has a lot of crossover with cognitive science and with symbolic systems and computer science. And I said, hey, you know, this thing that we call machine learning is something that we all do. It is a human experience to just think about what's going on in the world around us and to learn based on iterative experiences that we have at work and in our daily lives. So why isn't this kind of at the core of all kinds of things that we teach people? And as you say, why isn't it AI for everyone? Yeah. And I know we're running out of time, but I have one last question, one sentence answers. What keeps you up at night tonight? Like, what keeps you up in your field? It's a tough one. I saved it for the end. <laughs> um, yeah, last couple of weeks, I've been, just to be honest, I've been amazed by the, by the text generation technology, uh, um, OpenAI GPT-2. Uh, just playing around with that, just having, having fun. You, you, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's mind-boggling what, what kind of stuff comes out of that system. Um, so, uh, and these are the kind of things that I think are the ones that I, I'm sorry, this is the second sentence, I'm probably already the fifth, uh, but uh, <laughs> I wanted to share that. So that's why I got into this sort of interface between tech and, and sort of um, education and, 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 and that, that kind of thinking is that I, I find these things so interesting and curious and fun that I thought that what the heck are we, why are we keeping it to ourselves? Everybody should get, have the chance to have this joy and uh, amazement with what we can do and what fun we can have with it. I would say that commercial companies will own and capitalize on all of our personal data before the government gets hip to what we can do with it for good. I, mean, I think it's um, what I was saying earlier, the unintentional consequence of not uh, embedding uh, child rights and an assumption of, uh, and children's voices into the development of new technology. I think we have a huge opportunity to do good, but if we don't pay attention to what children are saying and what we know children need, we also have the potential to do some harm as well. I think just scale. So I, I think it's so amazing, like the work that we're all doing and so many people that are here doing such great work. How do we scale it fast enough? Mm -hmm. Because this is moving so fast. And so how do we hitch a ride to the collaborations, the networks that are already working, and really take advantage of that before it's too late? So with that, thank you all for being here. I, I totally agree this is a phenomenal opportunity. And thank you all for listening to us. It's an honor. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this episode compelling, there are three things we'd love you to do. One, subscribe to our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends. Number two, if you want to experience COGX yourself, go to cogx.co and register so you hear about next year's event. And number three, if you have any other questions you'd like to ask anybody in the community, don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the Global Knowledge Network. Thanks for listening and let's keep moving the conversation forward together.